My name is Katie Lee. My name is Malachi. And, and this, this is, is Connectional. Connectional is a podcast of the Minnesota Annual Conference, the United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church uses the word connectionalism and calls it a vital web of interactive relationships. You can find us on Facebook and wherever else you find your podcast. Okay, let's start the show. So you want to give us your little elevator speech about who you are? <laughs> Where elevator. are we? So how high should I go up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking oh. 100 floors. Oh, yeah. oh no. Um, my name is Gina Garrett. I was born in Montgomery, Alabama, the cradle of civil rights. And I have not been a United Methodist or a Methodist all my life. Uh, John Wesley won me over in the early 90s. And that is when I became a Methodist at Jubilee United Methodist Church in Waterloo, Iowa, under Tom and Andrea Bishop that are now known as Sophia Fasua and uh, Kwesi Kenna. Um, raised a Baptist, became a Catholic, ordained in a full gospel environment. Uh, United Methodist went to a Presbyterian seminary. Oh, uh, just for me, my, just like me, just uh-huh, like me. For yeah. my MD. Yeah, all right. But I got my doctorate from a Methodist seminary, Wesleyan, D.C. So uh, I'm pretty ecumenical uh, as far as my training goes. Gina, mm-hmm. may I ask you, what did you go for seminary? Um, Dubuque. Oh, okay. Uh-huh, Dubuque Theological Seminary in Dubuque, Iowa. Mm, yes. Was there, what was it that first drew you to Iowa? Yes. Uh, I have, um, I got my undergrad degree from Alabama State University mm-hmm. in Montgomery, Alabama. So I have a, uh, uh, undergrad, my biology and chemistry, uh, major and minor. I have a master's in higher ed and administration from the University of Iowa, an MDiv, uh, from West, from, um, Dubuque mm-hmm. and from Wesley, uh, doctorate in humanism. Oh, oh wow. That's some big words. It is. <laughs> Big student loan. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, Lord in your mercy. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. And Nancy's here too. When we talked to Nancy, you were our very our first, first one. Yeah. Our very first interview. Yes. So yeah. what are you doing up here, Nancy? I'm chilling out. <laughs> That's what I come up here for, just to hang out and to provide maybe some company for... Keep me sane. Yes. That's, <laughs> we try to keep each other sane. Yeah. And where are we right now? I actually can't even We remember. are in Deerwood. Is that okay to say that? <laughs> We're in Deerwood, Minnesota. Just don't give them the address. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, we are in Deerwood, Minnesota. What, two and a half, two hours and 20 minutes away from Minneapolis? Pretty much. What's there to do up here? Preach. <laughs> Seriously, this is a resort area. A lot of cabins, beautiful cabins up here. Uh, people love to bring their boats um, year round. You know, they're in the summer, they're out in the boats and just enjoying water skiing. The winter, we have the fishing on ice. I had never seen all those little houses oh, on the lake as I've seen my first winter here. Uh, people are really culturally um, acclimated. Because they love music in the park. There's always something going on. Plays in Brainerd. So believe it or not, it's pretty busy around here. They always have something going on that can be done. Yeah. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. So you've been here, Gina, if I'm correct, uh, for about two years, right? Two years. This is going into my third year, yes. And so what's life been like for you in Minnesota so far? Hmm. Um, I was in Iowa for a period. So I'm accustomed to being the only black in a town or cross-cultural appointments. That's the majority mm-hmm. of my appointments within the United Methodist Church. 
However, Minnesota is different because of the Minnesota niceness. Hmm. It, it's it's um, different from the Midwestern niceness <laughs> in the sense that people don't traditionally say what they mean. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I've had to adjust to when it is really about something very serious. Um, I... I've even almost not called it Minnesota niceness and called it just plain hypocrisy. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that has been my biggest adjustment. The winters don't even bother me because I was used to that in um, Minnesota. But it's, that's the one thing, especially in church. We don't, there's no place for that, especially I find that it inhibits progress mm, yeah. and it prevents yeah. us from moving forward. Uh, in all realms of the church, not just spiritually, but in all realms. Um, and I've been meandering my way through that a little bit. I think all of us, uh, clergy of color, particularly uh, the black people, most of us that they bring in from out of state uh-huh. struggle with that. Because okay. in our culture, you know, we value the idea of knowing where you stand with yes. somebody. Yes. yes. Right? Because if you know there's a problem or some tension, then you can begin working through it that's but right when people have like the passive aggressive nice veneer yes. it's hard to know where you even stand with people to know if you need to do that work and they can make it difficult to navigate problems very difficult very difficult um it's it's difficult when you're in a meeting and everyone is smiling and great and the next thing you know someone comes in your face and blows up because that person was offended but they didn't want to say anything to you and it's not offended by anything personally but it's usually offended by the book of discipline <laughs> you know what is right and what is wrong so uh yes um you know veneer is usually sometimes thin but this is not <laughs> you know it's pretty thick <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Have you had, uh, how has the conference been for supporting the, um, supporting you in this cross-cultural position? I mean, have you been, you got to know Nancy, so have you had support of other black clergy in Minnesota or other, have you been able to find clergy community? No. Don Hauser and Akins has been a great support. Hmm. Uh, but my bishop and my DS has been my greatest support. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. uh, problems when I first came, where I was attacked because I was an LLP. Mm. Uh, though I have a seminary degree and have all the qualifications for elders, orders, uh, I was. And I went through a lot. Mm. It was very traumatic. So I had never been through stuff like I had been through. But anyway, my bishop, bishop O and uh, Reverend Nienauber, mm-hmm. Exceptional, exceptional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Had it not been for the support of the two of them, uh, I think they probably would have railroaded me. Oof. Maybe five people, just five people. I think they would have actually nailed me to the cross and crucified oh me. No, I'm serious. Wow. It was that bad. Wow. It was that bad. Wow. But you're talking about a strong support that had my back, held my arms up for me and everything. Whatever it took to show that I had a strong force behind me, they did it. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Uh, and so when we were talking uh, before the interview, you mentioned that you have been in ministry, uh, not only in a variety of places, but in a variety of settings. Yeah. And I'm wondering, what have your previous experiences uh, as a pastor been like compared to your experiences here in Minnesota? Hmm. Iowa was different from Alabama. <laughs> and Alabama is different from here. Virginia was the most fair. Hmm. 
Um, the state of Virginia? The state of Virginia. Okay. Alexandria, Virginia, at Franconia United Methodist Church, where I was assistant pastor, and David Manor was the senior pastor. David uh, was a white male. We had an exceptional relationship. And uh, there was never any problems. Things were pretty fair, very smooth. He and I balanced each other perfectly. Uh, in Iowa, Alabama, and here, there's a subliminal feeling of the little lady, mm-hmm. you know? And attach that, the little black lady, mm. you know? And as some of them have said, the little colored lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that comes, you don't have any right to tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. Or who do you think you are to say that you, you're just supposed to come in and preach. You know, it's, it's kind of that attitude. And you face that and you encounter that. Um, and I'm sure it's tough for black men, but for a black female, it is even more tough because you're the little lady and you're really out of your place in the first place anyway, you know? You're supposed to be in the home. Maybe you don't know how that's supposed to be just being a black female in the home, but you don't come and hear me, white male, tell me what to do. So yeah, that's pretty common across the board, wherever you go. Uh, For the listeners at home uh, who didn't hear our first interview with Nancy, some of that came up when Nancy was sort of explaining to Katie the backstory of like the quote unquote traditional role of the black woman in both black and broader church society is like the homekeeper, mm-hmm. the support system, and not necessarily mm-hmm. as the out front person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that, that other dynamic that I noticed in South Dakota when I was out there is the, um, I, I, I think I told the story of um, the DS told me when I was there, don't go in the kitchen. <laughs> because there were times where the women, they would be preparing things mm-hmm. for service. But he said, whatever you do, stay out of the kitchen. And I didn't know what he meant. Mm-hmm. Well, I would walk past the kitchen and the women would look at me like, you know you're supposed to be in here with us. But I think it was just the role reversal okay. of them being the ones cooking and not me. Okay. And that, you know, I really should be in there. And then I did have, it was uh, tempting for me. I wanted to be in there to be with them, to cook along mm-hmm. with them. But he said, don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. but, but, but yeah, it was like, what I noticed was, you know, people resisted the fact that you're a brown person, a black person, and you don't tell me what to do. You gonna try to lead me. Yeah. It's not yeah. supposed to be like that. It's yeah. supposed to be flipped the other <laughs> right, way around right. where, right. where yeah. you, you know, we're the leader and you follow me. Right. They don't like the taste of authority like coming from like our faces. at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a lot of us in the cities, uh, especially those of us who are a lot of white liberals in our lives, um, it's been the kind of thing where like there's this awakening of like, oh, this issue that we didn't realize was a thing. So clearly, quote unquote, this issue has been uh, just a part of your daily life for your whole lives. Um, The issue of racism, the issue of racism in the church and outside the church. But I'm wondering uh, if there's if you've been seeing or sensing any shifts or changes or conversations after George Floyd was killed this year. Um, And Mm -hmm. I know one is you're in this um, rural community and you, Nancy, being in a more urban environment. What what have you been sensing? Well, in my community, I have been widely accepted prior to the George Floyd incident. Yeah. Um, 
people know me in Crosby. So small, you know, a few mm. thousand people. People are beginning to know me in Aikens. They definitely know me in Deerwood, and now I'm be, I'm being known in Brainerd. Uh, so when they see word is spreading, you're <laughs> yeah, in town. Yeah, yeah. It, well, yeah. Um, when they see the black female, they know, oh, that's the pastor of the United Methodist Church in Deerwood, and they even come up to me and start talking as such. So people have been always already very nice and accommodating. However, since George Floyd, I have noticed a bending over backwards accommodation. It's like everyone is extra, extra nice. Everyone wants to make sure that I sense and understand I like you. It doesn't make a difference to me that you're black, you know. Mm. So I, I, I see like almost an overcompensation hmm. to, to show me that I'm different and I accept you. Um, yeah, interesting. Do you, do you think that's white guilt in a sense? Um, white guilt. Um, also um, a discomfort not wanting to be lumped with a group that may not be like them. Um, definitely some guilt. Because I think a lot of people with everything that's been flooded on Facebook, the newspapers, on television, whether they're willing to admit it or not, there's been a part of them that was racist and they did not want to admit it. And many have been confronted with that racism now. Mm. And unfortunately, they don't know what to do with it. Mm. Uh, too much of one thing is going to make them angry. Too little, too little of another thing is going to make them remain complacent and not do anything. So where is the happy medium where it's just enough to pull them out of their comfort zone, pull them out of their anger zone, to bring them into a place of acceptance where they no longer deny who they are and what they are so that we can be about moving forward. Hmm. Wow. What about you, yeah. Nancy? Well, um, of course, everybody wants to talk about race. Right all now. All of a sudden. <laughs> people who didn't want to talk about race before, they're all wanting to talk about race. So I've gotten a lot of phone calls from people from the church and from outside of the church. Um, people wanting to do podcasts and, um, you know, it, it, friends of mine who never talked about race before all of a sudden, too, want to talk about race. I had one lady who called me at night and it kind of reminded me of Nicodemus. <laughs> she was like, she's always had issues with race, but she finally felt comfortable enough to ask me, but she came by night and she called me and she says, I don't want anybody to know about this. Wow. This is a very private thing, but am I a racist? She asked me that and I says, well, I don't know. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so what she wanted to do was to, to just tell me some things about herself to help her determine if she was a racist or not. Mm -hmm. So um, I gave her some things to read and that type of thing. But so so now finally, like Nicodemus, she wants to know how to be born again. No, what? no, 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 really, no, she wants to know how to not be a racist, mm. but she came by night secretly, mm. so it's See, I'm interesting. Not, I'm not getting any calls, I'm not getting any questions, no conversation, no one is talking to me about it, and if I bring it up, I, I, I see a shuffling of the feet, <laughs> you know, that people are a, a little uncomfortable, yeah. and yeah. it's it puts me in a delicate position, and this is why. I shared with you earlier 
being raised in, in the cradle of civil rights, and as old as I am, um, I'm reaching very close to the age of perfection, that number of perfection. <laughs> and um, I was raised when they had the water fountains marked, colored water fountain, white water fountain, colored bathroom, white bathroom. Schools were totally segregated. Um, so I was raised in that era. I was raised with the clans broadly walking out with their white hoods on and, and, and with, with great pride or riding in their car or sitting on the back of it, you know. That, that was the time that I came up in. So see, this fight has been a long time for me and, and I'm exhausted. But coming from the South, we've always been able to verbalize our feelings. We've always been able to talk about where we are. Racism is very overt there. If you are, you are. And they let it be known that you are. And we deal with who you are and we move forward. So to come to a place where I'm not even allowed to put it on the table in honesty. You see, there's a difference with putting it on the table and you acting like you care, acting like you understand, or acting like you want to do something, or you're doing a little bit to placate the situation. And I need to stop. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, no, it's good. And it's interesting because I had a similar experience when I, uh, I worked for a ministry program for a summer out in Yellowstone National Park in Montana, and a lot of folks out there from the Midwest. And you know, like you said, being Southerners, I was born and raised in South Carolina. I probably didn't see the Klan as much as you might have growing up, but I've certainly seen them more than enough to be comfortable. You, you know, go. and I grew up from the place where, you know, the racists aren't afraid to admit they're racist right. because Southerners are the kind of people who put their cards on the table. Yes. So when I got out there with the ministry team I was working with, I was in charge, I put all my cards on the table day mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. and boy, did it crash and burn. Oh, yeah, and, I know that and when I spoke to the supervisor, he goes, no, 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 you shouldn't have just put it all out on the table. Like that. <laughs> I was like, well, where I come from, that's how we do it. Yeah. We, you know, if we got a problem. We yeah. say we got a problem, yes. and then we'll figure out a way around yes. that. But we're not going to do this guessing game, yes. do they like me, do they oh hate me, yes. right? Because you can't operate that way. Yes. But it, it's a major cultural difference yeah. uh, in the way people behave with discomfort um, here in the Midwest. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I might get burned for saying this, but Methodism has taught me not to put it on the table. Hmm. You're not? I'm, I'm, okay. that, I hear that quite often. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, that has taught me, especially in the conference I came from, mm-hmm. uh, don't, don't tell them your feeling, you know, don't be too spiritual, um, don't drive the right kind of car that we don't, the wrong kind, that we consider the wrong kind of car, and, um, and let's face it, we're different, we have different dynamics, there are different things that are important to us, and it doesn't mean we're less than, it doesn't mean we're better than, but it means our identity is tied up in a different way mm-hmm. that is sacred to us. Um, the home is sacred to me. This is my space that when I walk in here and I close the door, uh, I'm closing the door to the outside world, so it's important to me that I have the best of what I need to make me as comfortable as I, I can be. Now, if someone else doesn't identify with that, don't judge me, because that's my paradigm. Um, just accept it. So I, I've been judged more within Methodism than I ever have. And Unfortunately, I believe that that is a common uh, experience, not just for black clergy either. I just think for anyone who's outspoken or doesn't necessarily fit in a box, uh, that Methodism can be quite the harsh critics uh, for people who don't fit a particular mold. Why do, you, why do you think that is? Very, I mean, if you think about the origins of Methodism, 
Methodists was an insult because they were so orderly. Mm-hmm. They were like rigidly orderly people, right? Mm-hmm. Very methodical. And I understand the safety in being methodical, right? You you like to to abide by the same steps always every time because you know the steps work. But I think there's a blind spot that the steps work for you mm-hmm. and that they've always worked for you. Mm-hmm. And people don't always see that maybe I can still get to where you're going by taking different steps. Mm-hmm. Or maybe your steps weren't made for me and I can't fit. That's right. Or maybe your steps can't support me because they weren't built with me in mind. Totally. Right? But if you look at how white Methodism is in America, something like 96% last I checked, mm-hmm. right? What it means is uh, whether it was intentional or not, and I don't believe it was intentional, what it means is that those methodological, uh, like uh, methodical steps were made for white people mm-hmm. with white people in mind because mm-hmm. in Methodism, white people are the norm. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's not a box I was ever made to fit into because it's not a box that was ever made with me in mind. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. they're so protective of their process mm-hmm. that what they do is they end up crushing anybody who wavers outside of it, even if it's mm-hmm. good for them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and, and the thing with, with me, too, coming in my era in the South, especially Montgomery, Birmingham, places mobile like that, you were... You were, it was hammered in you, beating you from the time you could talk, go to college, get an education, be the best you can. You have to dress better than them. You have to um, articulate better than them. You have to have a better home. You have to have a better car. You have to have more. You have to do this. And black women were taught you have to think like a white man. Hmm. You have to think like the white male, but you have to be the black woman because the black woman is a strong woman. The black woman is superwoman. The black woman runs her home. She covers her house. She doesn't let anything get her down or take her down. That is innovating. Hmm. It is exhausting. Hmm. Dehumanizing. Yes, I am tired, hmm. you know? Yep. And it's, it, it just got to the point that a few years ago, I said, I'm not thinking like anybody but Regina. Yeah, just Gina, me. My brain is good enough. <laughs> I, I, I don't have to think like someone else to survive. Mm-hmm. And either they take me the way I am, or they don't. Mm-hmm. That is liberating. Yeah, it is very liberating. But you see, that was that's that was the way we had to survive. Mm-hmm. That was our survival mode in order to be accepted and to succeed. Mm-hmm. Right, being black in the South, mm-hmm. you learn early to like go along to get along. And even as a young kid, it always, like, turned me sour and put, like, this sickness in my stomach. Because if you know me, you know I'm not the kind of guy to go along to get along. But I was well into, like, my 20s before I realized that there was any other way than than just that. Because you're right. That's just how it is. You just learn that, like, you don't make trouble unnecessarily. You don't cause waves. uh, And depending on the ratio of black to white people in the particular part of the South, you don't make too much noise either. Right? Because it might not be might not be entirely safe. Right. And so it's it's a different dynamic. But you know, I, I I was a rebel. When they had the colored and white water fountain, even as a kid I would go to the white water fountain. <laughs> and my mother would be petrified. She said she just knew that I was gonna get killed. But I intentionally did it. I was like, why? Why do I have to go to a different one from them? I couldn't get it in my head or I couldn't understand, you know? I was always this rebel or I would get a clerk told in a store if they wanted to wait on someone else before waiting on me. I say, I'm first. I don't care what color they are. You're going to wait on me. I would cause, you know, a ruckus. Crazy. <laughs> I was crazy. I moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Very militant. Very angry. Just coming from Montgomery at everything that had happened. And when I got 
there. I got a job at Kirkwood Community College, and they didn't hire blacks at Kirkwood Community College. I probably was one of three blacks working in the entire college, huge community college. Um, and the blacks turned against me. They wanted to know how could I come in town and be hired at that college. Learning my way around, the best doctors, where I could go shopping, the best place for me to live, and everything else. Who do you think helped me? The white community. The black community told, turned totally against me. Here I am, a very angry black woman from Montgomery, Alabama. If it was possible for a black to be racist, I was racist. If it was possible. <laughs> so let's say I had a lot of prejudice and bias in me. Okay. Yeah. And I went there, and I'll never forget, I was walking into Hy-Vee's store, and, and I was walking with God and just giving it to God and praying and seeking his face and crying out to him. And um, I was walking in Hy-Vee, and the Lord said that I'm filling you with my love. And I felt this warm, almost like the baptism of the Holy Spirit I experienced, but this warm, just, just liquid flow all over me. And I remember walking into the store, and I looked at everybody, and I had such a love in my heart for them. And people were just smiling and all of a sudden so friendly. From that day forth in 1989, it has changed for me. It takes me deeper and deeper. And when I think about it, I want to cry deeper and deeper and deeper. And I have so much love in my heart for all people now. I don't care who you are. You can be the clan and I love you. I don't like what you do and I'm not going to let you hurt me. But I love you, you know. And and it's a God thing, and I can't change it. And that's why I always talk about love. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take a change of heart for this world to be a different place and a better place. And if the church doesn't stand up and change its modus operandus and how we're doing things and delivering the messages that we are, we're going to be a lost cause. Someone, uh, there was a rumor going around that in the protest in Portland that the protesters were burning Bibles. It wasn't true. But a friend of mine who's also um, a, progressive, a progressive pastor, she posed a question. She goes, well, what if they were burning Bibles? I know they're not, but what if? She goes, she goes, don't they have every right to? Like, what has the church done for them? Tell me how the church has been there for the people who are pushing for liberation and justice in the streets, other than telling them to be more calm and be more civil towards the people with their foots on their necks. She was like, you know, the church in previous generations and currently hasn't really shown up for those people in any substantive way. So like, even if those people, even though this didn't happen, if those people had those feelings, could you really invalidate them given the state the church has been in for the last decade or two? Um, I say burn all the books of the people you've been listening to. <laughs> Believe the Lord, but burn all these people that's been spouting all this stuff to you all this time. Burn no, there's something to that. But I remember, uh, I can never pronounce his first name, but his name is Reverend Seku. He came and spoke at my seminary, and he's partly responsible for radicalizing me uh, the way I am. But he was talking about how, like in the midst of Ferguson, when the cops were out, beating folks bloody in the street. They went and knocked on the doors of churches and all they asked was for shelter. When the cops sorry, beating folks and dragging them off the street, can we just come inside okay. and have a place where they won't come beat us up? And they said all but two churches closed their doors to them, right? So to people who've had that experience with yes. church, yeah. I mean, like, wouldn't you expect them to have, like, some sort of animus towards you because you talk a good game, mm -hmm. but in practice all you've been is irrelevant. True, mm -hmm. true, true. Mm -hmm. We're not walking to talk. 
we do have a form of godliness without any power. And I'm not talking about just power of the Holy Spirit, but I'm talking about the power of true love, mm -hmm. the, the power of compassion, the power of wanting to make a difference and showing concern. It's all been taught. I mean, if you really want to make a difference, does it take you a whole year to make a difference? Does it take a whole year to make a change? Right. If you sincerely want it? I think you make a good point because when I want to, you know, quote unquote, guilt trip my people, one of the things I do is I read uh, like the uh, baptismal and membership vows in the, uh, in the hymnal. They're one of the reasons I'm Methodist. I believe in them so deeply, mm -hmm. particularly the the parts about God giving us the power to fight evil in whatever form it presents mm -hmm. themselves. And I think that's what you're talking about. We have like given up, it seems, this mandate of using this power that God has given us to like go out and do something in the world in many cases. And I think a lot of folks just don't have time for what we're talking anymore because they, they've never seen us do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have entire generations of people like my age yeah. who've never had a positive experience with the church. Mm. That's deep. That's very deep mm -hmm. um, and grievous. It is. Mm -hmm. You're right, it is. It is. That's sad to be said mm -hmm. because that should not be the case. Um, we should have learned the lesson my generation where we should have passed on something to your generation that is so powerful that you're ready to carry a torch that's brighter, not dimmer. And somehow, somewhere we have allowed that torch to diminish the brightness of it. And we're going to have to pay for it. We're going to have to pay for it. I think, you know, I study history. My first degree is in history. And I think somewhere in American history, somewhere between like the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, I think as a people on both sides, we sort of convinced ourselves that like it wasn't necessary anymore. Became complacent. Right. And we became complacent. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's not that it ever wasn't necessary. I just think people became fatigued. Yes. Right, because it was always necessary. And you're right, that's a torch that we should have never put down. Yeah. Mm. I left Alabama, uh, I think it was 1988, and very progressive at that time. And even I grew up, even in, in the midst of segregation, we still had black doctors. Uh, we had uh, black hospitals, St. Jude. We had uh, black businesses, very prevalent. But I left and it was still progressive with integration and things are moving forward. And I moved to Iowa and I got accustomed to being the only one. Mm -hmm. So when I went back to Alabama in 2000, I think in six or five, my mother had a stroke and I went home to take care of her. I saw a regression that blew me away. They had regresso, even the black community, that I wondered what happened. And I know the kings of our era had passed away, see. There was no voice that was speaking to the generation, and we became complacent and rest on the laurels that had already been won, not realizing those laurels were just a drop in the bucket to what needed to be won, and we had to keep the momentum and continue forward to garnish what we needed. And so now the regression has occurred. We've got to regroup the regression to move forward to gain more mm -hmm. because we've got to regain what we've lost, recapture that. Mm -hmm. And I, that's sad. Yeah, I think, too, too, there's this gap in the sharing of information mm. because when I look at a lot of the younger people, you know, like my son's age, um, they had this false idea that um, everything was fine in the world. 
Mm. You know, everything is wonderful. Everything is mm. beautiful. And um, when George Floyd died, and I looked at my son, I said, now you believe it? Wow. Because mm-hmm. I've been trying to tell him all this time, hmm. this is the kind of stuff that happens. It's been happening for hundreds of years. But a lot of young people didn't believe it and, until they saw it wow. with you know, their you, own eyes. You know, young folk, we hard-headed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a lot of them live in this false uh, whatever that, you know, but when Martin Luther King died, you know, racism wasn't a problem. Hmm. And they're kind of, kind of blinded to the fact that systemic racism exists because they hadn't hit that wall yet or either they hit that wall and they didn't know what it was. Because I think the older people, maybe we didn't share the information and, and the stories that we had that may not have been shared or maybe young folks weren't listening. I don't know. But that was a turning point, I think, for a lot of people, white people too, because folks didn't believe it until they saw it. And I believe this is particularly true for like people raised outside of the South, right? Because uh, my mentor, mm-hmm. whom you all know, the Reverend Gloria Roche Thomas, yes. uh, has all the wisdom. And mm-hmm. when I first moved here, she was telling me yeah. about like the fear of being a black woman who grew up in the South, but like raise her kids uh, in Minnesota and that she would see other black families raising their kids. And she'd see like that in many cases, these black children didn't realize that there was an actual discernible difference between them and their white friends. Mm. And because, mm. because the atmosphere isn't as overt here, they didn't realize mm-hmm. that life, that their life plays by different rules mm-hmm. their, than their white friends. Right. She'd say yes. quite often by the time they realized the rules were different, it was too late. Yeah. That, she'd have to help, that she'd have to tell her, her kids that you can't go out and play pranks on people with your white friends. You can't mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. breaking the law in tiny mm-hmm. little ways because they're going to go home. You, right. You're not going to go That's home. Right. So it's right. like that whole notion, you know, when you grew up in the South, I don't care what generation you're in, you have no choice but to see because people don't really hide it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they don't want black people around, they will tell you they don't That's want right. black people around. That's we right. all know the places we're not supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you grow up in a place with that veneer, mm-hmm. right, that, that we can all just get along and mm-hmm. everything is okay and mm-hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King was such a long time ago, yeah. right, it can fool you uh, into, into thinking everything's okay and what you'll do if mm-hmm. you don't watch it is find yourself walking right into a trap yes. because no one ever taught you how to see the signs yeah. because yeah. they didn't think they needed to teach you that yeah. anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And, and yeah, you're right. A lot of young people have like really been awakened by this George Floyd yeah. moment and have really seen uh, the world for what it truly is uh, for the first time. And, you know, I wish that they didn't have to see it, uh, that things were different like they thought they were. But uh, the truth is the truth, even when it hurts, yeah. especially when it hurts. Mm-hmm. I was born in 88 and uh, <laughs> Nancy's face is so horrified. Um, but I think a lot of us, I mean, the 90s was... A wealthy time for a lot of people. It was a comfortable time for a lot of people. And I'm actually watching the show Pose right now. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen it, but it's really fun. Um, but it's kind of interesting that, uh, as you know, history is a theme. But it was talking um, in the, in the second season of Pose. Uh, it's talking the whole premise of the series is around the um, ballroom, the underground ballroom community for trans, especially people of color in um, New York and multiple large cities across the country. Um, And so in the second season, Madonna picks up on the Vogue scene and creates the very famous song Vogue, right, in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of, all of this is coming together to make me think that a survival tactic 
for them was to take advantage of Vogue's popularity and come out of the ballroom clause a little bit to teach white ladies how to vogue at the YMCA, right? It was a survival tactic of we are poor, we're persecuted, mm -hmm. we're underground, so let's teach the white ladies how to vogue because it's popular right now, and now we can make some money from these bougie people. Um, and so those conversations make me think like a survival tactic was to not re-traumatize people with the stories, right? Like this, there's some really hard things that people went through, and if you if you're just trying to keep your kids safe and comfortable, um, it's almost like it felt like for me, the 90s felt like a lot of a we don't see color kind of era because it was like, maybe we can just maybe we can just kill racism by just like being comfortable together. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're really seeing that that's not the case. Yeah. That, that didn't work. <laughs> and see, the, the, the greatest insult me, to me is to say, tell me that you don't see my color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I want you to see that I'm black. Okay, mm -hmm. that doesn't define totally who I am, but it defines in part who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm a product of my black community, my black culture. I'm a part, I'm a product of God's community and the Holy Ghost culture, <laughs> but that is all, you know, woven together as part of it. And, and like Malachi said, in the South, we told the story, see. Mm -hmm. My kids grew up knowing, knowing. They grew up knowing, excuse me, uh, about racism. They grew up knowing about things that I had gone through or my parents had gone through in the past. So they knew and they were prepared. Uh, I remember when I, when I was at Kirkwood, and that's why I went to get the master's in higher education and administration. And they told me they wanted to prepare me. I was coordinator of 10 different programs and activities. And I want to share that when I left Kirkwood, they had to hire three people to take care of my job. <laughs> of course but I, I did 10 different <laughs> programs and activities at the college. And they told me, well, they had a position and they were grooming me for that position and told me I need to get my master's. I didn't understand why I needed to get my master's when they just hired a director of, um, of uh, college giving development, a you know, director of development. She didn't have a college education. She only had a, a, a BA. So why did I have to go get a master's to get a position like hers, a director's position? Um, but I did. You know, I went to the University of Iowa, and I remember one day my dean was standing there. No, she was the VP. She was standing there, and the director of development was standing there, and I was, well, Gina, how are you doing? How is college? I said, resenting that I have to go get a degree that you don't have to get. Mm. Um, they called me in um, told me I had to apologize to her uh, carried me through several scenarios the, the VP at different times to question where my thoughts were as far in theology of student life and academics as it applied quote, supposedly to the job, but basically it was about me. And I was blackballed from the job. I never got the promotion. Uh, they went on a witch hunt trying to get me, get, catch me in something, you know? Hmm. That didn't pan out. When I left there, I took a leave of absence to go to seminary to see if I really would stay in seminary before I resigned my position. She came to me and apologized, but that was after two years of blackballing me. They blackballed me and mistreated me for two years. And then I left to go to seminary. Um, so even though I had moved from the South to the Midwest, I shared the stories with my child. 
I, I, I allowed her to know what life was really like for us and how we had to live our lives and, and move forward. So she's 19 years in the Navy now. She knows. She went in knowing. She went in with her eyes open. She understands. My son is 10 years older than she, and he knew. He probably knows better than her. But isn't it something? Both of them are cross-married. Both mm -hmm. of them are, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But then I taught them to love everyone. I taught them to see color, but I taught them not to make a difference either. Hmm. Right. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I wish, I wish that that would have been more my education, but I can also see where... I can see where that I don't see color terminology came from, mm -hmm. um, but I wish that that hadn't been the case. But it wasn't a term that was developed, I believe, in many instances of insult. Purpose was to insult. Mm -hmm. Right. It was. It was a term used to say good intent. Yes, mm -hmm. it was. It was very good. Good intent. I understood that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Um, but a lot of good intents are not. So. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. The road to hell. Yeah. Well, something, something. The road to Hades, yeah. as you say. Yeah. I learned. The road yeah. to Hades. Girl, it was hell. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you're talking about an experience that I imagine that uh, many black people in quote-unquote professional careers or careers that have a high number of white people have experienced before is that, and oftentimes, uh, when they want you, they want your face and your skin. Token. Right, but they don't want your voice. And I, I will, I, you know, I will put out the advice over this microphone that I was given um, by both Reverend Gloria Roche Thomas and by um, 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 the DS Cynthia, Cynthia Williams. And so Gloria was telling me, she was saying that, uh, Reverend Roche Thomas, she was saying that, um, that you know, you got to be careful to what you say yes to. Because they're going to want you to be on every board and in every group, and they're going to want to take your picture because with your picture in their group, all of a sudden they're diverse, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And so you say yes to the things that you want to do, mm -hmm. to the things that fill you up, and to the okay. things you feel called to. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Cynthia essentially told me that, you know, unfortunately, given the numbers and the demographics of our conference, that in some way being tokenized is relatively unavoidable. And then Reverend Tyler Sitt, who pastors New City Church, once told me, he goes, you know, when people want to tokenize me, I just take the microphone and say what needs to be said anyway. <laughs> he says, you know, you can always do that. When they want to tokenize you and they pass you the microphone, you can speak to the people who need to be spoken to, or you can speak to your people. You can say what needs to be said. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, I found that to be good advice. Yeah. And the fact that we have such good advice tells you that this is something that we as non-white people have been experiencing for a long time. All right. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And not even just limited yeah. to black people. I said non-white for a reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I told Nancy this is the first time I've experienced that tokenism over and over again but this is the first time that I've ever been on a conference that I have not been used mm -hmm. the first time where my gifts have not been called upon or anything else it's like I'm out here in no man's land alone and I'm doing good and so okay um, I know that may not be the case but that's the feeling you know that, that is the feeling that I get. Um, in the other conferences, I'm too holy. I'm, I'm too much talking about God and the Holy Spirit. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm too talking about God speaks to me. I'm too um, attached to the Word and live in the Word. And, and, and that has been something, uh, has been a gatekeeper for me. But I'm 
made up my mind a long time ago. I'm following Jesus, you know. I'm following the Word of God, and I'm going to submit to that. And if that makes me too holy, if that makes me too what too much or too whatever for anyone, then that's a you problem. Yeah, yeah. that's a big you problem. Because mm-hmm. John Wesley wasn't like that. <laughs> Not the one I read about, you know. <laughs> I didn't come into the Methodist Church to be an LLP. I was blackballed from becoming an elder. I don't feel like I have to jump through hoops now to be an elder. I jumped through hoops one time before. Why should I have to jump through them again? Even though this conference has invited, said that, you know, the reason I was blackballed in Alabama would not be the same here. Um, I just don't want to jump through all those hoops again. I've done it once. Why should I have to do it again? Right. Um, So as long as I'm able to preach the gospel, to preach in season and out, then I'm happy. As a person who's also an LLP, I feel very much the same way. Is that, you know, as a black person, I know enough about institutions, particularly predominantly white institutions, to know that jumping through all the prescribed hoops doesn't always even work out in your interest anyway. No, right? no. Right? no that's it what doesn't, happened. Right? Yeah. But, and if I can already do the work that fulfills me and that God calls me to do as I am, I can live with that just fine. Yep. But here's the other thing that bothers me. We have to jump through a lot of hoops. Always something extra. But but others do not. And I do not appreciate that allowances are made for so many different situations. But you will still want me to jump when I've already jumped. Higher than you asked me to jump in the first place. Higher than anyone else has to. Higher than anyone else has to jump. So why in the world? Why in the world should I continue to jump? So I'm just at this age. Let the Holy Ghost use me and speak and preach. You know, I, I was pointing to Katie because she said this in the car when we were driving around earlier about like how for like white men, it seems that like mediocrity is like the standard in so many cases. Oh, mercy. Right? I said in so many cases. You know, I'm not writing people off with a blanket statement. No, no. But that quite often it seems that like a lot of white men, not just, and this isn't exclusive to church or ministry at all, but mm-hmm. just in American life, that like a lot of white men can get away with like mediocrity mm-hmm. in many cases. But if anybody who does not fit that mold wants a shot, we got to go a little further. It's, right. It's like what you were talking about earlier, how all of a sudden to do this job that you were already qualified to do, they want you to go get another degree. Right. They didn't make another person who wasn't black get. To go get that degree. Right, right, right. You know, it's the whole we go twice yeah. as hard to get right. half as far right. type right. of thing. Right. That the other people, they just get to meet the standard. But if you look like us, mm-hmm. you always have to find a way to exceed. They almost want you to be special mm-hmm. uh, to, to get a place inside mm-hmm. as opposed to just being adequate like everyone else. We don't almost. get to just, we don't <laughs> get to just be adequate. I just, mean, being special. nice. <laughs> oh, you being nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Being cordial. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the things that's so devastating to me, though, is just the um, the the um, the journey that the African American person ministry goes through. And I mentioned this before at the other interview, how I look at the trajectory of my life as opposed to the ones white girls who went to seminary at the same time. And I mean, they had placements immediately, many of them. I had to go find my church mm-hmm. because there was nothing available mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the blackballing, 
the big, the getting fired, and the history of loss. Over and over and over and mm-hmm. over again, mm-hmm. um, I look at my finances. How if I had been on track? Even this is be, even before ministry, but going places where white people decide, nah, I don't want you here anymore. Fired. Nah, we don't want you. And so a lot of times white people look at that and they say, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Why is it that everywhere you go, you have trouble? with your employment mm-hmm. and then wow. you realize wow. it has nothing to do with, with you because everywhere we go is racist it's America yes, absolutely. <laughs> and they looked at and they you know somebody even asked me the other day do you have this kind of stuff happen to you everywhere you go like it was me mm-hmm. I said no yeah yeah it does happen to me I almost wanted to say no because I it was a reflection on my being a bad person but I thought oh hell no I'm not going to own up to that it's because everywhere I go I'm met with race with racism and people in power who decide, you, you know, you, you know. I, I mean, I've been in places where I've been well qualified, and they'd hire people that would be less qualified to be my supervisor. And if I show at any point that I know more than this person, they get irritated mm-hmm. and they decide, "You got, you got to go." <laughs> they'll pick my brain and learn all that they can from me, and then they'll say, "You're done." Kids, you know? don't let them pick your brain and get oh, my God. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and then you end up losing in the end. You, and everybody else got a pension. Everybody else going to retire. But in many cases, we end up broke and poor when mm-hmm. we retire because white people continue to put the ads to whatever we do and, and the, 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 the knee on the neck everywhere. Everywhere. And you know what? My three favorite words now, whenever somebody wants something from me that requires any emotional or intellectual labor for that very reason is run my check. Okay. Mm-hmm. Up front too. Absolutely. Up front. Yeah, yeah. Pay me before I get there. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. If you don't think I can do it, don't ask me. Yeah. Right? Because they, they they get us like that so many yeah. times. Yeah. I once had an incident where I spoke. Uh, I think it was at your church actually. <laughs> I spoke, and I won't name the event and the people involved. You know, okay. uh, yeah. but like, but like I spoke. It, it wasn't your church. Okay. It was just hosted there. Okay. But there was an event that, was that I was there. speaking for, and me and another speaker, both of us non-white had been told we'd be paid a certain thing mm-hmm. upon finishing the event. The event's over, nobody's coming up with the check. We're getting ready to go home, and we're in the parking lot sort of upset about it. And that uh, going out the door. But no, we went back. <laughs> See, that's the thing. We went back in the door because mm-hmm. we were like, well, wait a minute. Somebody got to tell us something. Mm-hmm. And then the person was like, oh, well, well, we'll do this for you instead. <gasps> and we were like, right, right. Um, and so we just, you know was me. It like, was it like a meat raffle instead no! of yourself? <laughs> We're not oh, going to go into specifics, raffle. but let's just say what we had been promised was not what we were offered at the conclusion of that event. And so the person who had made these promises to us, they weren't there. So we decided that instead of, you know, doing the thing I normally do, which is raise hell in the moment, mm-hmm. that we're going to sleep on it for 24 hours because we was hot, 38 hot, mm-hmm. that we was going to sleep on it for a night and then reach out to the person who asked us. Um, and they fixed it. They got it fixed immediately. They were as angry as we were when they found out mm-hmm. that that's what happened. I said, mm-hmm. you know, you told us this. They told us this. Mm-hmm. What do you know about it? And they said, you know, I told you you were getting this. You're going to get this. I'll fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I respect that. But it's just the audacity to like, mm-hmm. I show up. Mm-hmm. I give you my labor. I do this difficult emotional work that isn't easy yeah. for us in the interest of not me, mm-hmm. but in you becoming better. Yeah. And then you got the nerve to do that to me. Right. And mm-hmm. the plain truth is, by and large, white folks don't get treated that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so now you got to pay me up front. Yeah, absolutely. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Let's do it. 
And if the story is too much, Katie, you can edit it out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're never too much for me, Mel. <laughs> you just tell me if you don't want to get fired, I'll edit something out. <laughs> oh. Lord knows of all the things in the Lord I'm afraid of getting fired oh is not on the list. Because, you know, I walk with the Lord. We need the, you, Malachi. I'm fine The Lord for you. walks me out the door, I'm, I'm going to go with you. him. <laughs> you know, it's all right. If you, get, if you get fired, then I'm going with you. <laughs> And, you know, I will tell you, that's been a weird thing about being here in my district and in my conference that, you know, there are a lot of white people here, a lot of clergy colleagues who have made me feel very supportive, Mm -hmm. who whenever I've been like those times when I have wavered Mm -hmm. and thought about keeping my mouth closed just to go along to get Mm -hmm. along Mm -hmm. or knowing that I was going to say something, thinking that it might get me in trouble. Mm -hmm. Many times I've had my white colleagues turn to me and said, if they fired you for that, we would raise hell. I would. I, they, some of them are flat. I told me that if they fired you for, if they fire you for being the you they hired you to be, I'll walk out the door with you because we wouldn't let them. And you know that's not a thing that we always experience in no, our workforces. No, it's not. Well, this is this is what my colleagues, my white colleagues, told me when I was blackballed because of my the amount of my student loan that I met I got to be a better pastor <laughs> because I wasn't given scholarships or mm-hmm. money for housing and stuff like my white colleagues were. I had to make it and I had a child to support. And you know, if you're in seminary full time, you don't have time to work a job too. You, you, you have to invest into your studies. And I took extra courses to be better prepared, like a year of Hebrew and whatever, so I could better extrapolate the word of God, <laughs> the people of God. Uh, when they said that they did not give me elder orders because of the amount of my student loan, and they said, you know, we, they did not believe it was my student loans. They believed it was because of the color of my skin. And their thought was, what are we going to do with this black woman that's an elder in the United Methodist Church in North Alabama? Where would we appoint her? Because we always have to appoint her if yeah. she's in good standing with a certain salary. So if she's at this salary now, we can never appoint her lower than that salary. What are we going to do with her? So we do nothing. That You know, I absolutely believe you because there's a reason why I'm in the Minnesota Annual Conference and not the conferences in the places where I came from before this because they pretty much... I. Minnesota wasn't the first conference to try to recruit me. There were several people offering me appointments, and I chose He's to hot. come here. He's hot stuff. Well, well, I will say they showed up at the last minute. It would have been nice to know I was one at the first two years. Because <laughs> I was sweating bullets. I was, three, I was three weeks away from being homeless again when oh, I moved I up here, see. right? And so when I was meeting one of these other conferences, and they called. They told me that, you know, we want to be appropriate about this. We're going to call your current this is superintendent uh-huh. and i looked at him and goes oh he don't want me yeah i was like I bet you he don't even know me and uh-huh. he was like no you're so qualified there's no way and so the next day he calls me he goes you're right i called him and he just told me flat out he didn't recognize your name and that we could have you and i was like wow. see right they, they don't want me That's and you know crazy. black folks we know when we're not wanted yeah. we know when we oh, know we, we know when we're not wanted yeah. right and we know why we're not wanted right and so that's why I was such, you know, well, I'm going to go somewhere where they want me. Minnesota actively pursued me. They called me. They said, we can make this work. When the process had some hiccups in it, my current district superintendent, Dan Johnson, and my mentor, Reverend Rose Thomas, they bent over backwards. Mm-hmm. We did the year-long candidacy mentor part in two years. And my final 
a couple months of seminary while doing final papers. I would get on the phone with Reverend Rose Thomas every night. I'd write all. We, we did it so quickly that we had to, she had to copy and paste the questions from her teacher's edition because we didn't have time to wait for my book to show up in the mail. Oh my goodness. And so like every night I was just writing pages on pages and then I'd call her and we'd talk about it and then I'd edit and then we just start over, and we did that. And I said, well, I'm going to work hard to go somewhere where I want it. They might not know where they're getting into, <laughs> but if they want me to be there, I'm going to take that because we don't always get that often, especially if you're not the type to roll over and play nice. Yeah. Right, right. So I believe you 100% because it still happens. Yeah, that's sad. It is sad. I've worked hard for that. I worked very hard for that, and that's why now I will not jump through the loops and hoops again mm. to get what I should have gotten the first time. And I think if things can be bent for other situations, right. something should be bent for me. Uh, we want to make sure you all have the last word of what, what, if there's anything else you want to share. But my question is a very broad one, so you can answer it however you like, but where do you see the church going from here? Strange thing, God has been really impressing upon my spirit, repentance and revival. The church has to turn from the ways of the world mm, and turn to the ways of God. Hmm. If we say that we are Christians, then we need to start reflecting the image of Christ. Hmm. And we f reflect the image of Christ. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about a holy roller. <laughs> you know, because we can't live everything that it says in the word of God. Yeah. But if we can't live everything, at least we can live the royal law. And that's love. Yeah. Love covers a lot of things. That doesn't mean that love gives us the license to sin. I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about how we treat one another, the compassion that we show for one another. I'm talking about eradicating racism out of the heart because it's a heart thing. And I, I know all these books that are out that everybody's reading and is talking about the laws, racism is systemic and the laws got to change. Yes. I'm all with that. But you can change the laws every day, all day for the rest of your life. If the heart has not changed, wow. the hatred, the anger, the bitterness is still going to be there. And it's not going to make a difference. Hmm. They're going to still hire you because of tokenism. Hmm. You're still going to be mistreated because you're a token and nobody likes you. So the church has to pick up the gauntlet. We laid it down. We put it down. The church has to pick it up now. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the Methodist church led that? Wouldn't it be wow. wonderful if the Minnesota Annual Conference, because of what happened in Minnesota, yes. would take up that gauntlet and lead the Methodist church worldwide in a revival that talked about godliness, holiness, the word of God, praying for the breath of the Holy Spirit, to come down and change hearts. Lord, we, we need a washing. That's where the church needs to yep. go. Yep. We need a washing in the Holy Ghost. Praise the Lord for yep. being baptized Amen. in the Holy Ghost. Amen to that. Yes. <laughs> Amen. I think you are 100% on point. And I feel that way all the time. There's just like this abiding sense all the time that like y'all... <laughs> Y'all, y'all, like, can't, can't you see that <laughs> we are missing something, south, right? Something. That we're yeah. like, how do you not feel this yes. gaping hole we yes. have? Because I yes. feel it all the time. Yes. Like, how, how do you not feel yes. 
what we're missing and what we're missed it's because somewhere along the line and I think it has to do with the rise of like evangelicalism but we can't put it all on other people's shoulders but somewhere along the line it became that living out the gospel began to mean like being legalistic telling people what they can and can't do and what they must do and what's appropriate and when 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 like you say I always understood living out the gospel meaning first and foremost to live out love your God and your neighbor as yourself that everything else you do is supposed to lead first and proceed from there. And the way I understand that Jesus taught it, if I'm re- if I read the Bible correctly, is that that's the way you do it. That if you live your life steeped in love of God and neighbor, mm-hmm. that it'll really take care of a lot of the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but you know, but we don't do that. We don't, I tell people that you know we need to learn how to pray with our feet. Okay. You know <laughs> that we got to go out and live. Mm-hmm. That we, that you got to go out and like live the word in terms of your talk. right. You got to walk the talk. Mm-hmm. You get you can't just be people have had enough of a a friend of mine who's no longer Christian. She always likes to tell me that you know when's the day is gonna come when the church is the first people to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. She goes, you know, so why, why wasn't the church the first people in the street to say Black Lives Matter, right? 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 Why weren't uh, the church ever? Why isn't the church ever the first people to be on the front lines of justice for their people in their communities? Why they always got to wait until the tide changes for other people first? If they, if y'all really believe the stuff y'all talk about, y'all would be the first ones out there. And that has convicted me every day since the moment she said it, because I think that has to do with what you're talking about, Gina, is, you know, that we talk a good game, but we don't live it. We don't live it. I, I have quickly had this analogy I put. The Jews like to talk about putting a, a fence around God's word. Mm-hmm. In other words, pork, you know, they couldn't touch pork mm-hmm. because it was a sin. So the, the rabbis would say, don't go within 50 feet mm-hmm. or you would sin. We have put fences around God's laws that has made it impossible for anyone to live up to man's standards. God is not asking us to live up to man's standards. Hmm. He just wants us to live up to his. Yeah. We can't get his totally right. So Lord knows we can't get everything man wants us to do that talked about the way holiness truly is or, or what is right or what is wrong and God. and I just want to live out the word, okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. Book says it, that's it for me. I just yep. want yep. you to go out there and love somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Nancy, do you have any last words? I have. Ooh, y'all going to get me in trouble. (laughs) Good trouble. Good trouble. No, good trouble. All right, John Lewis. That's what John loves. That's what he says. What a good trouble. But I I have heard this by other people. I am just appalled at how the Spirit of God is absent in so many of the methods. The Spirit of God is absent in the the Methodist Church. Hmm. I believe that there's a whole lot of busy work. And Methodists are so good at busy work. It just drives me crazy and wonder why there's no power Mm. behind what they do. They put, I mean, I love the social justice piece. That's what drew me to the Methodist church. But um, I've even noticed it now. Now that everybody wants to talk about race, race is going to become the new fetish. Mm -hmm. Okay? And not the spirit of God moving and, t- and showing people how to love mm. but it's the works the hands-on things mm. and not digging deep and getting into what god you know in relationships and god moving through me in the spirit so the spirit there are a lot of churches that are devoid of the spirit of god i believe if jesus were to come show up would not even recognize not, i agree it's like what the heck are y'all doing up in here this is not what i meant get back to just the simple principles mm-hmm. 
you know, that Christ had and, 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 and do and walk like Jesus. But the church is not doing that. And that's what turns a lot of people off. And I believe that the reason why we have all these social service agencies, Minneapolis is good. Minneapolis has probably more social service agencies than any other place in the country is because the church has left the work of Christ to the world. secular world. Right. Because what I've been surprised by is how many of my white friends outside of the church have become outspoken now, have been the ones to speak up to their family and friends and say, you know, this is not OK. We know it's not OK. And I'm tired of pretending. Why can't you do that with a full pension and salary and retirement and a guaranteed appointment? Why do I, the one who's at risk both physically and career wise, have to be the one that's the tip of the spear, taking the risk to do the work that we all know needs to be done? You have the safety. You can take the risk. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll have Dr. Yolanda Williams. Remember, if you have any questions, you can email me, Lee at gmail.com. Have a great week.